I'm Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? What's good in the hood? Um, what is good in the hood? Uh, what is good in the hood? Let's see. What is happening to me? Well... I'm okay. I'm hanging in and hanging out. Um, uh, you know what I, I realized this morning? I felt like, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm in trans transition, but like, I feel like we've, we've all been in transition for like five years, like five years or so. Honestly, it's like, when will the next part come? I, 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 so like to say like, oh, I'm in transition just sounds kind of like, not really true at this point but like it is I do feel like I am in transition but then the thing is yeah like when does the transition how do you know when you're not in transition anymore I guess is the thing yeah and honestly I think everybody feels that way right now I I was in a meeting yesterday and somebody said how are you doing and I said I mean I'm fine question mark like I it's every and everybody's like yeah that's exactly how I feel like there's nothing wrong really it's like my life isn't even really that affected by the pandemic and yet it feels completely affected by the pandemic it's the weirdest thing I just feel like everybody's holding their breath yeah yeah I agree and also like Right. We are looking, I am looking for uh, milestones and markers that never come in a way like, oh, when there's a vaccine. Well, that didn't really work out to the way we thought. Oh, but now that, you know, like that we're going to start recovering and we're going to be post pandemic, but that didn't really happen because then Delta. So like, what are we doing for the rest of our lives? Are we going to be like, oh, we're just kind of, and maybe so like, maybe, maybe there's, um, Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like, because particularly, like, specifically, I'm like, okay, like, I keep thinking, right, I I don't, um, I keep thinking, like, okay, well, maybe if I um, start to bring in income, like, that'll be, like, a mile marker, but, like, I don't really think that is actually that true. I think that that'll just give me a sense of stability, maybe, but really i don't know there is there there seems to be less and less stability i guess internally but i am feeling like um sorry my something just popped up said enjoying microsoft word not at this moment <laughs> lord and really not even Who's while enjoying I'm microsoft word does anyone say oh i really enjoy using that microsoft word? Uh, I had me a good Microsoft Word session the other day. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> anyway, so that's where I'm at. Where like I'm like, okay, you know, um, I had this thing happen, and um, we can cut out the specifics. Maybe here's everything is a scam, and everything's a cult. Like even things that mm-hmm. aren't a scam and a cult are a scam and a cult in my eyes now. Yeah, and I just feel like. So what happened to me was, okay, so I won this thing. I had this month of, 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 um, instruction, which, which was very helpful in some levels, right? Okay, fine. Then I said, well, okay, I would like to know, um, if you can help me 
get a rep. Like that's my, and that's their whole mission, right? Okay, fine. So then I talked to the head of the joint, right? And he said, okay, send me your script. Cause which means he didn't read it when it won the contest, which is interesting since he runs the joint, but okay. Uh-huh. I think an intern read it. Okay. that That's okay. But an intern, I'm not sure an intern should be deciding contest results, but that's okay. I don't know that to be true for a fact, but okay. So then I sent it, I sent him the script and didn't hear hold my calls, which, you know, is on draft 12, right? Uh, I didn't hear, I didn't hear. So I checked in and said, Hey, I just check it in. You said you would, you'd think about reps. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to move forward. Uh, also, I would like to know, like, what would your suggestions be for next steps with your company? Like in terms of what classes, just curious, you know, never, he said, Oh, I sent it to another of my colleagues to read. And then we'll both compile our thoughts and get back to you. Well, okay. That didn't happen. So then uh, yesterday, though, I get an email from the colleague, um, lovely human who I've met online briefly, who said, <laughs> your script is not ready for market. It needs all these things. Um, and and I was like, okay, you know, Jen, you are not, your feedback thing is getting kicked up. So like, let's breathe. Let's not. So I said, okay. And all the things that he said, and here's how to fix them. And, um, no mention of like, if you fix, no, no, no message from the head of the place who originally said he'd help me. Right. So from a colleague who said like, all these things need to be fixed and no mention of like, Hey, you know, um, uh, if you fix these things, we'll help you find a, okay. So no, like none of that. So then I said, well, what, and one of them is like glaring typos. Now, listen. I, I'm, I'm a human like everybody, 12 people have read this script and we found typos and found typos. If they're glaring, we're all fucking stupid and blind. Okay. So that was a little hard for me to, I'm like, okay. So then I wrote and said, okay, thanks for the feedback. Um, I don't have a lot of financial resources at this moment at my disposal to spend on classes, but what would you recommend next steps with roadmap? So what I was hoping they would say, this is, this all comes down to Gina. The thing that I'm hoping that was said was not said, which is your script is great. We'll help you find a rep. Okay. That is just the truth of what I was hoping. Okay. So when that didn't happen, I was bummed. Then I was hoping I would say, Hey, what class? I don't have resources. I was hoping they would say, we'll give you a discount or give you a free blah, blah, blah. That didn't happen. What he said was you should check out our free seminars. And I think you'd find, um, I think you'd find a a formatting class, very insightful for three, for $300 or whatever the class costs. I think it's like $200. I don't know what it's called. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, okay. So then I wrote the head and said, Hey, I just got so-and-so's notes. What are your thoughts? And he said, I think you should take the next step in the program, which is the, Okay, so what this is reminding me of is like <laughs> when you go to you want to make a smoothie and so you go to Whole Foods and you get the most beautiful organic produce and you get these beautiful bursting blue blueberries and these ruby red strawberries and these and then you prepare them and you put them in the blender and then it's just one color and then you just realize actually everybody's just in the blender right. like we have this idea that there's 
you know, oh, well, this guy's a blueberry. And so he's got, and I'm just a little lowly, right. whatever, raspberry. But it's like, no, he also needs you for his next thing. Like, every, that's the thing is that this level, everybody just needs to leverage whatever they have with everybody else to get to right. the next thing, which is fine. But if that's what the majority of people are doing, it's a lot of chasing our tails. Right. Because, so, so you know. So, right. So my my yes it's a lot of chasing tails and it's a lot of figuring out uh right who can help when to pay for help when not to pay for help right when to move on and say okay thank thanks so much i'm gonna and also the ultimate thing i came to it's so crazy for me that it I, I really get pissed off that it comes down to spirituality because I'm like, oh my God. But it does. It comes down to do I trust and believe that the universe has more than one door and more than one way to get to the thing I want? Because if I think this is the only way I'm going to get repped, the only way I, I'm in deep trouble is the more I, because they're just one thing and they don't. They're just, like you said, they're just in the blender with everybody else. I have to somehow, and I would like to get to the point where I remember that there are many roads that, you know, lead to Mecca. Like there have to be, because if yes. there is one, yeah. I, I, I will never, I'm in deep trouble because one road, it gets clogged. It gets, what if it's under construction? So I was talking to a friend who's pretty spiritual herself and she was like, Oh yeah, this is, you know, like basically saying whatever you believe in God, higher power, you, you got to believe that some force and that some part of the universe is benevolent enough to not just make this one avenue, your only hope for moving forward. Oh, absolutely. And, and if you think about it, you know, Hollywood and the whole industry is basically a decades long gold rush and Companies like the one you're describing are like the Levi Strausses, like the Levi Strauss company made its money during the gold rush because it sold the jeans that the gold miner, it sold the equipment that the gold miners needed to, to, you know, in the pursuit of looking for gold. And it's a completely reasonable career path. It's like, well, I mean, if, if we could unpack it, we might find that the company was started by a bunch of writers sure. who were struggling to get. And so they just said, well, listen, you know, there's people out there willing to take sure. a class and, have, you know, so let's just make our money off of that. And hey, I'm not knocking it. Like, maybe we're going to do that someday. Uh, it's but it, 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 I'm just saying it to put it in the perspective of like, even if even if you're talking to, you know, plan B right. pictures or Annapurna pictures, it, it, there's no, there's no guarantee that anybody has an elixir or a panacea. And by the way, also like when you get your first writing job, you're not going to be rich, right? Right. right. <laughs> which is a, which is a big real. Like I just realized that the other day. Like I keep thinking in the back of my mind of I'm going to sell this whatever, and then I'm going to be rich. It's like no, I know actually know a lot of people who make their living from writing and they're yeah, not yeah, rich. Yeah, right. Right. There's also that, right. There's also that it's not, I guess for me too, just hearing like nothing is a panacea because 
there, there is no panacea. Like a panacea is a fallacy. It doesn't exist. It's a fantasy, but it's actually not based. So I, I do better. So what, what, what yesterday when I got this email saying all the things wrong with my script and look, my script has problems. I'm not saying it doesn't. What I'm saying is right. I already paid an expert to help me with it, right? Like someone I trust and love who who I trust implicitly who said, this is ready to show to the industry, right? So now what I'm hearing is this is not ready. And I'm like, okay, um, okay, you have your opinion. And I, I guess that's just what I'm, I, I, I'm realizing that even Levi Strauss, even though they're really good at one thing, it doesn't mean that they know everything about genes of all kinds. They know mm -hmm. one thing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. They know their thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm just really, I mean, it, it, it's so in tied up with like, for me, like, oh my God, like who, who is gonna, um, who, who is gonna champion my, my work and stuff like that. And really Tabitha Brown, who I adore, who's, you know, got her own cheese ballness, which I love, but still she's, but anyway, I watch her videos, Tabitha Brown, America's mom. And she said, um, yesterday or two days ago, her message was like, listen, I don't know who needs to hear this, but really you may have to do this alone. And I'm not saying that you're going to be lonely or like, that's a bad thing. But I, what she's saying is basically what we know, which is you got to be your own champion and also think outside the box and also don't wait for other people to like give you a pass and all that stuff. So it was a good reminder when I got this email yesterday that like, okay, okay. All right. I, I got to open, I'm going to open more channels. I'm going to, he like in my mind, even. Yeah. In your mind. Well, no, not your mind. Even it's the whole thing is in your mind. I mean, in, in my mind too, uh, uh, this whole idea that we're just mapping on to whatever situation, all of our, all of the stuff that we, we bring to every situation, uh, will you pick me and will you choose me? I mean, listen, uh, like it takes a lot of work to undo that. It takes a lot of naming it. It takes a lot of naming it again. <laughs> it takes a lot of like, oh, wait, here, here it's happening in this different way. It's wearing a different outfit, but this is still my same shit. It's life is a, a, a if you're, if you're even doing it, it's a process of figuring out what, what you're, automatic patterns are that you that you have to change. I, I was coming up against this with um so I wrote my my five minute play about the mafia meeting on Zoom, which is a very cute concept, you know, and it was just a horrible I just felt it was such a horrible script. Like I couldn't I couldn't figure out how to end it. Like I had the characters and I had the jargon and I had the the, the concept, which is always the first three things that come to me so easily. And then it's like, okay, but then what happens? Structure. <laughs> What's right. the... And it, as I was saying this to my husband, as I was saying the words, I was realizing the very thing that he then next said to me, which is, yeah, but that makes sense for you because having a plan and having a, an end goal and working towards it is not something you were ever taught to do. You know, say, same reason that I will like get 95% of the way through any given task and leave like the last 5%. Why? I, I don't know. It doesn't make me feel good. 
it's not any hard. If I've already worked for three hours on something, why not work for three hours and 10 minutes? Uh, because this is my thing. This is my thing. This is my difficulty in identifying a goal and then creating a series of steps to getting to it and being able to see how it goes from A to Z. That is just a big uh, hole in my cognitive ability that I literally have to now construct on my own. And that's your thing. You have to construct this not just not waiting for somebody to pick you, but actively picking yourself and say, you know, and saying like, I'm going to have my own yeah. roadmap for for how yeah. this is. And I'm going to have my own. It's very hard. It's easier said than done. It's easier said than done. But I think that it, like you said, it, it is a process and it is, that is the work, right? And figuring out like, oh, I got this email these are my feelings. And I, what I wish I was like, okay, let's deal with like what you're feeling, like what you wish would have happened versus what happened. Like, and I just, the truth is I wish they would have said, we love your script. There are some, we think there's some really fixable things. And then we have these suggestions for the people we would love to introduce you to. Like, that's what I wish would have happened. That did not happen. And that is just the truth. Like, that is the truth. So I had to, like, start with the truth, right? Because if I didn't start with the truth of what I wanted to hear versus what I heard, I would make it all about something else. Yeah, yeah. All about it. I have a question, though. Um do, do you know that they do actually know yes. reps? I know have... that. Okay, but they here's do. here's the other thing that I noticed. This is so interesting. And a friend pointed this out who also knows them. They, they show all the, the, the writers they've signed and they're really proud of that. They're all super young. They're all in their 20s. Now, I don't know if that's because people don't, I I don't know the reason, but it's just interesting data to look at. I'm not saying that they're like being an assholes to old people. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is all the writers I've noticed, they're they're helping to sign or introducing writers of color, which is fantastic. They all appear to be in their 20s. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay. That's also good to know. It's just good data. It's like, it's good data. I'm just gathering data. That's right. That's how you have to treat it all. Like I'm just on a fact finding mission. And when I get a certain number of facts that leads me to go in a certain direction. And yeah. And, and also, I mean, I'm also noticing that the person who's at the top of this food chain is some, some, I'm assuming it's some white guy. Yeah. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Which, okay, whatever. Like you have to work with the system that's in place. White guys do run most things. So you do have to, you know, like sometimes you just have to cast your lot with, with, you know, random white guy. But, you know, what, I mean, like what, what if we, what if in 20 years the story is, and that's when you started your own company that champions writers and what, you know, like, it's all, as you always say, it's all about finding the thing that you think is your weakness and making it your strength and making it your superpower. Because one thing we can be certain of is that you have a lot of really intense and powerful strengths. You have an amazing affinity with people. You are one of the best 
people yeah. persons I have ever known. You're great at making connections. You're great at being honest. Even when it's hard to receive feedback, you know, you're not lying to yourself about, you know, what the truth of it is. Um, you, you're psychologically minded, you're hardworking, and you're talented. So it's just a matter of finding like, how is this your little bag of ingredients here? Or your smoothie? Yeah. You know, what? What what's the right vessel right. for you to be and in? I think you're right. Like it all comes back to the manifesto of pick me, choose me, love me is going to be the work for the rest of my life to work on uh, filling, like you said, that cognitive development hole in my system, in my psyche and building that up from nothing. And I'm doing it, but it takes freaking time. And I, yeah. I just, and I, I, I think it's, that's the truth. And I'm also like really about like, yeah, I'm just also getting more comfortable with the truth. Like the truth can be really uncomfortable for me. Like the truth is my relationship, you know, isn't what I would like with my sister. That is the truth. Um, I can say all kinds of things about my sister. I can say all kinds of things about me. It's the truth. The truth is I'm afraid people won't like me. Like I'm like, like now that I'm going sort of in the other direction of like not wanting feedback, what I'm doing is trying to mix in just like say, okay, well, what is the truth of the situation? Whether it's like, because or else like we've talked about, and I think we're not alone. Like I will make up all kinds of shit. I will make up all like, like whole tomes of stuff I will make up. And I think that that is just a distraction from feeling what is the truth. Oh, absolutely. It absolutely is. And not only that, you'll make up all kinds of things that lead you to a very predictable place. It's like, you it's, uh, you, you know, you'll, you'll go through all these machinations and you'll, you will unknowingly put all of these characters in your story and all these plots in your story that lead you to the exact same ending. It's like, if you're, if you were talking about these things as a series of short stories, you'd say, but every story has the same ending. We gotta, we gotta think of it. Of a so different ending. And like, and it, I think it's so easy to say like, Oh, you know, if you're gonna, and I do this, so I, I'm trying not to do this anymore just to see what happens. Like, you know, and my, my husband will say, if you're going to make something up, make something up good, but see, that's too easy. So it, that doesn't work for me. It's like telling a crack addict just to stop smoking crack. And that I know that doesn't work because I've done it a million times with crack addicts, actual crack addicts, uh, doesn't work. So it's like, okay, that doesn't work saying just, just make up something good in your fantasy life. No, no, no. But what I have to say is, okay, what's the actual truth of the core of my being, not the truth about them or what they want or what it appears like what am I feeling and what is the truth and it was really freeing yesterday to say the truth is this is what I wish they would have said that that is just the truth they didn't say it and I feel really bummed out and by the way they they could have said that like I mean without knowing anything about how things work over there I, I know that people people tend towards laziness and you know it's just always really easy to say oh take our formatting class it's $300 that's probably their best selling class I mean you know when given the option people will go for the easy way out and frankly I hate I hate to say it but if it's like well you're just some right. woman you know you're just some middle-aged right. woman right. like I, I, who's who why why should I put my 
energy, effort, right. intention and so, on, on you. You know, I think that it is, it is, uh, I used to say, right, like finding a champion for your work, but like you're saying, we have to find the right vessel, the right time, the right, a lot of things have to come together to, to happen. And some of those I can be working on, on my own, right. That don't have to do with anybody else and champion myself. And then when someone else comes along and they can maybe fit into the picture, then great. But like, it, it's always comes down to, you know, um, it, it, like, it always comes down to what the outliers say, which is, which is be your own champion, do your own work, stay in your lane, invite, mm-hmm. be very selective who you invite in. Right. Like that's the other thing. Like that's mm-hmm. the other thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, right. I want to take help. One of my character defects is I want to take help from anyone who will give it right. Like that's my people pleasing. Right. So like, anyone wants to help me, I'm like, yes, we're on board. And then I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I have to be discerning about the actual help I get because sometimes like this is case in point. My father, when I lived in an apartment in Bucktown was like, I wanted a second phone jack put in. Right. And he was like, please let me put in the phone jack. I knew it was going to be, he doesn't know shit about, he didn't know shit about phone jacks. I could sense it was going to be a trauma. He's a very large, he was large. He had to get down on the floor, which makes him angry. It's a whole, but I said, okay, because he wants to help me. One, he's my dad and all that, but still it's kind of like that. It's like someone wants to say, Hey, I want to be your plumber. And they're, they don't know that much about plumbing or they're, you, you are then inviting help in that may be very destructive. But for me, it's like, oh, but they, they, they have a flashy thing and, a, and, a, and, they, and they, they know all these cool, fancy people and a, a money could be involved for me. Then I'm like, yes, help me. And then I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. So it's just. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder if it would even be possible to just like temper one thing with the other. So like what, what if you for every whatever day that you spent feeling some type of a way about how somebody else feels about you. What if you could intentionally spend one whole day just being curious with yourself about how, how you feel about yourself at at a minimum, you'd be giving some more balance and at a maximum, you'd actually get some more of the insight that leads you to continually being the better and better. And I think I'd get some work done. Like, I mean, like spending a lot of time thinking about other people, how other people are going to could or won't or might help me. It it takes a lot of work versus if I'm focused on on what I want to feel like, what am I feeling? What's the truth about me? What do I want to do? What I might actually get some fucking writing done or at least have some meaningful conversations with myself versus predicting what joe schmo is gonna it's quite something hey let me run this by you i might have mentioned this on the podcast once before but there's a documentary called murder at middle beach murder on middle beach and it's on hbo and if you tell me that you don't have hbo i'm gonna kill you because i have your password (laughs) thank you um so it it is a documentary made by the son of a woman who was murdered actually here in Connecticut, not, not far from where I live. Um, and his mom was murdered when he was like 
like maybe 19 or 20. And three years after she died, he started making this documentary. So she died in 2010. So he's been making it since 2013. And um, it's a four part series. It's a four parter. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, really well made and and it goes through you know basically who who the list of suspects is and they're all pretty much in the family the it's the sister and the aunt and then the divorced dad the the estranged dad um without coming out and saying it he's pretty much saying like yeah my i think it was my dad i think my dad did it and one of the things that people in this story are always telling him is you're never going to get an answer to what happened to your mom. So you, you just have to let it go. And the tricky thing is I, I know from having a lot of experience with liars that that is something that a liar says because they want to preclude you from getting to the, the truth of what they've done. P.S. It's also something that is sometimes true. Right. Sometimes you do have to let go of, which is extremely hard for me to do. And whenever I hear somebody saying it to me or to somebody else, I'm always like, yeah, okay, but, but how, 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 what is that? What does that mean? And do you ever feel like, yes, I've let that go. Cause for me, I could feel like I let something go. And then if I think long enough about it later on, it, it, it just, it comes right back right. again. And so, so I thought maybe I'm not that good with forgiveness. No, I don't know. And I was just curious. I was just curious about what your thoughts are about letting go and forgiveness and how you do it. I think every single human has to figure out for themselves when the letting go point is. And it could be, it takes a bajillion years and it could be that you never let something go. And I find that that there there's okay i once you know i was dating the same dude for years that didn't love me my friend john who i love in new york the crazy guy with the 911 story that i've told where he's he's just like super just a crazy weird new yorker but anyway i he said you know and after 15 years of me telling him about this love interest that was unrequited he said you know and everyone's saying, you got to stop. You got to stop. You you deserve better. Blah, blah, blah. He said, you know what, Jen? You're going to stop when you're going to stop. You're going to stop pursuing this. You're going to let go of this when it is you're either in enough pain or you've had enough healing and you'll let go. So I think for me, right, it takes what it takes to let go of something. The other thing is we would never have documentaries if people let go. We would never That's have true. true crime if people let go. We would also never have convictions overturned if people let go. We would ne So I think it's very, uh, if someone feels really called to do something, I know that it could be dangerous even to a point. Some of these people research these documentary stuff and they, they, they put themselves in harm's way. We would never have good journalism in Afghanistan if people let go. So like I have a, I have a, a point, really yeah. hard time when people are like, you need to let go of something because here's the thing. Uh, everyone let go, let's go when they let go. And I, if the tr if I if the quest is so important that you need to hold on, 
then you're going to hold, then, then you're going to hold on until you need to let go. And I, 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 you know, there's something in, in 12 step land, which is let go and let God or hang on and be dragged. Here's the thing. I have learned so much by being dragged. I don't, it's not pleasant, but like, it took me 15 years to let go of that dude. It took me another, like, and Mm -hmm. yeah, I learned a lot about myself. So I say, because I'm also a true crime nut, go after the story, but know that it comes at a cost. And it just, it does, but everything comes at a freaking cost. I don't know. Yeah. And what you're making me realize is it happens when it happens because it's, there's a need there. There's like, it's like an itch you have to scratch. And once it feels scratched in whatever way, because I've also, by the way, had the experience of you know, letting enough time pass or getting enough information that I go, oh, okay, it, it was that, which is not to say that I never have any feelings about it anymore, but it doesn't consume me. When I really have a burning question about something, it really consumes me. And like my the thing about my sister's death being a great example, I, I was so like almost crazy with wanting to know what happened to her. And then and when I found out, it's not like I have no curiosity about it, but I, I feel it's been put to bed. Now I know what happened to her. She died from alcohol poisoning. Right. Like I may still have questions about, you know, why her life went a certain way or why I don't have a relationship with her kids. But the the thing that I was focused on, fixated on for, for three months, that now that's been answered. And now I can actually and then, let go. Yes. And, and because we're like thinking and you're like a really um... – sort of inquisitive human being, we can also say like, oh, alcoholism in itself is a form of murder. Like it is like Mm -hmm. the disease is a murderer. The way we all treated her was sort of um, like, is it raining there? Yeah. Oh my God. (laughs) It's beautiful. Yeah. Anyway, that's yeah, gorgeous. Yeah. We don't we don't have any of that shit here. So so anyway, <laughs> yeah, the right. point, like I, I guess what I'm saying too is like the thing that we're so look, your instinct about what happened to your to your sister on some levels was right. It just took a different form in a different way. And it's just it's just um but yeah, I don't I don't I think, you know, you know, my, my mom a month after my dad died telling me I had to get over it and let it go. I was like, oh, okay. God, it all, but also I, I'm so curious, these people who say that, do they find it so easy to let things go? I mean, it kind of feels like for generations and generations, that was the one and only answer. Like something happened and it's in the past and move on. And like, did, did anybody really feel like I, they must, there must be some people who feel they can genuinely just let something go the moment they put their mind to it. I've never had that experience no, myself. And, and- I mean, there's many people in my family who I, they, the way they tell me to let things go, I, I have to assume that they've let a lot of shit well, go. Good for them. Either I, that I, or they're, you know, good for them. But for me, it's either that or you're in deep denial and you're drinking yourself to death. So there you go. But yeah. You know what I mean? Like You've let it go, but you're also consuming mass quantities of a poison. So there you go. You think you've let it go because you've just done a workaround where you're, you know, numbing yourself in another way. Yeah. But in general, like, are you a very forgiving person? I feel like you are. Uh, I am forgiving. I also can be um, 
Right. I can also use, um, I can, I can forgive and then just still have resentments, but yeah, I'm a pretty forgiving person, a Libra. We tend to be forgiving. And also I feel like, you know, of course, sometimes I feel like I'm probably too forgiving and people are like, you should be really mad about this thing that happened to you. Other people take it on and I'm like, oh, they're probably right. And then years later, I'm like, yes, they're right. So I'm a, I happen to be really forgiving, but I think it can also be really a hindrance because then I don't let my anger out, you know? So. Right, right. Yeah. You have to be careful of that, that you're not just swallowing something to, in the name of forgiveness. I really, really, really genuinely love human beings. And I definitely think we're stronger together. But the flip side of that is I really am really then scared when I don't love a human being or when I can't forgive a human being. And that's not that's not awesome either. But yeah, Yeah, no, that's not a good feeling. I have to say, since you brought up being a Libra, um, Shout out to Terry, my friend who listens to this podcast. I, I was talking to her yesterday. She opens the conversation by saying, by the way, I am a Scorpio woman. <laughs> I'm like, it wasn't me. It was Buzz. She said, uh, I mean, yeah. she was being very good natured about it. But um, they're not all. I, I think she know. was. No, no. I th- and I. Yeah. And actually, what she said was, how do you how does a person just always know that somebody, and I said, no, it was like somebody she lived with and somebody she was close to, but it was funny. I didn't know that about her. And I would not have guessed that that was her thing. Because to me, when I think of Scorpios, I think of uh, people who are really like, like fiery, uh, fiery. I mean, she's fiery. Like she's, she's got a lot of energy and whatever, but I don't think of her as sometimes I think of Scorpios as being kind of out of control emotionally. And I don't, she's not like that. So she's showing me a softer side. Yes. And uh, thank Thank you, you, Terry. Terry. And Terry, yes. And, and believe me, Libras are like totally people pleasing, um, smushy weirdos. So yeah, we got problems. We all got problems. Today on the podcast, we're talking with Caroline Uwe. Caroline is a dramaturg and um, a stage manager, and Caroline works in opera a lot. And that's something that we didn't know anything about, really, um, and learned a lot about and had a very fun and insightful conversation. So please enjoy our talk with Caroline Uwe. because it was some kind of stage management work and also some like I have creative thoughts about the play <laughs> yeah uh, oh so like eight... so uh invites so much in his rooms yeah so is that along the lines of what you want what you're planning to do professionally um yes uh, at least some of the things that I'm doing. So I split my time between uh, stage managing opera and doing it's like stage managing and dramaturging or script coordinating like new plays that are being developed. And those are kind of the two extremes that I'm currently 
swinging through. Wow. So you you survived theater school. Correct? I did. Where did you go? I went to the University of Michigan. Oh, uh, in Ann Arbor. In Ann Arbor, yeah. And what did you what did you study? Did you study stage? What did you study? Uh, officially, the major there is called uh, design and production. I always term call it theatrical design and production because that way people know what the scope is. Um, so I study that, and then I concentrated in stage management. So. There's nothing on my degree that officially says stage management on it, um, but kind of soft concentration in the department is stage management, and then they have a few others as well. The way you're, the way you're describing it sounds so much more creative than I think I typically associate um, stage management as being like, for example, stage managing an opera, which, by the way, sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> I don't know why it sounds very overwhelming just to hear it made my heart go pitter patter. But it seems to me like you're, you, I don't know if it's unique to you or that's where the field is going, but it seems like you're more involved in like creating the thing than I would have imagined for stage management. Um, a little bit. I think, I think it's a little weird in opera, especially, um, because the role of stage management there overlaps so much with the role of assistant director. Uh, I think in a way that's more unique to the field, at least as far as, so a lot of assistant directors do a lot of stage management work. Um, and then it kind of depends on what different opera houses and what level in you're at. Um, but it's also interesting because a lot of operas are just restagings. Like it's the oh, same right. production, but we've just got you know new people in it. But it's the same thing we've done since 1999 or whatever. Oh, uh, truly, truly the same thing. Sometimes, sometimes, yeah. So the designs, like at the Metropolitan Opera House, which I got to tour once. Like sometimes they'll do new stagings with new blocking and new designs and things like that. But some of their rep is like the same show that was done two, five, ten years ago. Like they have that set for La Boheme and they're just going to keep putting it on until it, it, even after it falls apart, they'll make it look the same again. They'll just rebuild it. What? Without the what asbestos. is that about? What if without the, thank gosh, the asbestos is gone. But that, first of all, I have so many questions about how you got into stage managing opera, how, why opera lends itself to people doing more AD work and stage management work and why opera never changes. What What's going on? I think it's a lot of things to answer your last one. I think it's partially because I think, I don't know, my personal opinion is that yeah. a lot of the patronage for opera tends to be older people and a lot of opera rep that gets done at different houses is like the same mostly the same 10 most popular operas so you'll have a you know you'll and have butterfly man and Butter exactly. butterfly yeah you'll have yeah, and madam butterfly which is maybe on people's yeah. top 10 list yeah. um but like they're always there's always a bohem there's always like a rigoletto there's always so I think I mean part of it might also just be cost saving I mean it's it's a lot cheaper to not have to do a full new restaging 
of a production. And I think also people just like it. People are like, this is, I like this concept that these people did. And so we're just going to keep doing it because it'll, but one will always sell. And what's the point of restaging well, it if it will sell yeah. with the same staging that you did five years ago? <laughs> Yeah, here's my my impression of people like no, no having known people who love opera. Those people love opera. I mean, there is no though I mean, and they and I've never seen and now that you're that we're talking about it, it's like people don't like change, right? You could just take this as people do not like change <laughs> and I feel like people who love opera have a very specific view of what opera should be. I know jack squat about opera <laughs> other than when I go, it, 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 I'm like the the newbie that's like, oh, wow, this is really long. And I have no <laughs> idea what's happening. Like, that, that's how I go. But my friends who love it, I mean, they're like season ticket holders for like generations yeah. in their family yeah. own the tickets. And I'm like, whoa. Yeah. Sort of like, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm sitting over here judging people who want to see the same opera as a person who is on like my fourth complete viewing of The Sopranos. It, 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 it I shouldn't be surprised. Like people like what they like. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Caroline, I interrupted you. No, you're fine. But yeah, I think it's definitely, it, it's a lot of it is that where, you know, and I think for the like the Met does shows like in rep and so it's also just easier so there's always a mix of like maybe there's a new staging there's a couple new stagings and then there's a mix of like old stuff mixed in because they have all the sets built and in a way it's really nice because it's not like some shows where you build the set and then you finish the show you close the show and then you tear it down or you rebuild it or you throw it away they're like nope we'll keep the set forever until it doesn't work right. anymore right right yeah. right it's like old school style it's like what i imagine you know way back in the day but what about if you like you want to change the op do you have any voice in like what if someone an upstart comes along and is like hey i like labo m but what if we made it is there any room for that in opera there is i know that there okay. was a very interesting production of La Boheme actually I think like in Paris a couple of years ago where it was set in space and like a very extremely non-traditional love it was like a set on the moon or something like that and like people either loved it or they hated it but it was all the same sure. music it was all the same you know nothing really about the music had changed and I think with a lot of opera buffs like that's the thing that matters the most they're like right. the concept is the concept is the concept but it's the music and I think maybe that's also part of it too it's like, it's like eh, as long as it looks nice and it's enjoyable and interesting to look at people are there to hear the music which kind of makes sense it's such an it's such a music driven feel yeah, yeah yeah definitely so I'm interested in also in Boz's question how did you get into working in opera I fell into opera really randomly so I never seen opera before I went to school and my parents are not opera people. No one in my family is classical music, you know, background. Um, I saw my first opera when I came to school. I was like, cool, interesting. I might've fallen asleep at part of it through part of it, honestly. Um, uh, my sophomore year when I was doing my first assistant stage management work, um, I was put on the opera. I was like, 
cool, interesting. I'm willing to do it. Um, and at my school, at the University of Michigan, that's not always the case with the theater department and the stage management department. Um, and we can talk about that. But Oh, wait, wait, wait. Can you say more just now? Yeah, absolutely. What do you mean? So here at the University of Michigan, there is the theater school and the musical theater school, which are kind of the T in School of Music, Theater and Drama or School of Music, Theater, Dance. Um, And then the operas are headed, though, by the School of Music with production support from the university productions, which is kind of separate from the school in some ways but obviously like teaches the students in that school and things like that so part of it is part of it's a skill level because in opera you have to be able to read music and not every stage manager can because some of them just want to do plays or some of them just want to go into events management and you don't need to be able to follow a score in order to do those things Um, and then the other thing is the culture between the music school and the theater school here and I think at a lot of places is just very different the music school is really formal you know here at the theater school you know you can call your professors nicknames if you want to as long as they're respectful you're respectful at the music school you call them professor last name or doctor whatever or maestro you don't call you don't just casually be like Hey, Kirk, like, um, (laughs) they're like, please don't call me anything else. But they're usually it's like, hi, Dr. Sievertson, (laughs) like, or hi, professor, hi, maestro. So it's the and the cultures are just a little different. And the opera is definitely hard. It's a a hard slot to do in school as a student. Um, And so sometimes not a lot of stage managers or people either can or don't want to, can't or don't want to work in opera. Um, But I could read music. And my sophomore year, um, my stage management advisor who assigns the students to the shows that they're working on was like, cool, you'll do the opera. And I was like, cool, I've never done an opera. It'll be interesting, kind of nervous. We'll figure it out. Um, I did it. It was great. Um, I didn't really think about it then. And then my, what was it? My senior year, I was going to be doing my full, be the head stage manager on a show. And I had told my professor, same professor, listen, I'm willing to do any of the shows, but I'm not ready for the big musical at the end of the year. I think I just, I can't do the musical in the biggest venue on campus. Uh, But I am willing to do the opera. And again, I was one of the only people who was like willing and interested to do the opera. Um, And she was cool. Um, The opera is going to be Candide. Uh, It'll be in that big venue. But do you think you want to be, do you think you want to do full stage management or we could hire a guest in and you could be a first assistant? I was like, I think I can do it. Um, I knew nothing about Candide at the time, but Candide is basically a musical. Um, Okay. And so I basically did do a full musical in that big venue. Um, And then I did the next opera in the next semester as well. Um, And that one was a completely different kind of piece. Uh, It was a Baroque piece. There's a harpsichord. It's a whole deal. Um, And I realized... Caroline, do you... I have to interrupt you. Do you love... How do you know how to read music? That's like not something I know how to do in a lot of... I learned how to read. I can read very rudimentary music. Like I'm not good at reading music. I wouldn't say I'm a musician by any sense. 
Um, but I learned to read the basics of music and piano class, which my parents put me in when I was a child. So I can read notes and I can follow music and I understand how music is organized. Um, but I'm not like a singer or an instrumentalist who is like, I know this is a G. And I'm like, I have to kind of count a little bit sometimes. But <laughs> and I've learned a lot of reading music through doing opera because you I just picked up on how the musicians in the room referred to the music. And I picked up on like, ah, that's a fermata. Got it. <laughs> I'm just picturing like, so we've we've had a few stories on this show about, you know, people having to do parts where they didn't, you know, they had to go on last minute and didn't know the lines and the stage manager was having to feed lines. You, you don't, you do, you, you can't do that in the opera, like you're singing into the... <laughs> No. <laughs> well, thankfully, the way opera is done here is the singers come knowing their part. And anyone who comes in, in the, I think the world of opera, if anyone was to come in last minute, they don't call people who don't know the part. Everyone, it's part of the opera singers training is my understanding is a lot of them will study and have fully memorized, like could pick up from anywhere in the score five to seven roles in their voice type, basically. And they bop around the country, usually doing doing these five to seven roles. Um, Sometimes learning new roles or as they get older and their voice matures, maybe changing, you know, suddenly you can't sing Cinderella anymore because you don't look like a young Cinderella. So you learn, you know, a different role. Um, But literally, we had done a production. I didn't really work on it, but... There, we had done a production of Cosi Fan Tutte and a production in Texas lost one of the members of their company to like illness or something like that. Not lost, lost. He, I think he's right. But he couldn't do perform. And they literally flew this person who had sang the role in our production to Texas because he knew the music. And then they just teach him the staging really fast. Wow. Um, and they just go on and It's a sing. small so what you're saying is a small world. A like coffin. opera is a small Yeah. Yeah. It's also weird though because it's extremely sometimes international. Um and so it's it it fluctuates between being small and obviously regional country stuff, you know, also plays into that. Um but yeah, like it it really can be where it's like, man, we need someone to sing this role and we don't have them or we lost them or they can't make it anymore. And you just find someone else who can sing it the way you want it to be sung and you fly them in and you teach them to do it and then they go on and they do it. Like it's kind that's of a wild. system that works. I mean, that's like a pretty great system. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? It must help too that the sets sometimes stay the same and everything is similar. So that way, if you're redoing, it might not look that different unless you're doing the one in Paris on the moon. <laughs> then the one you did in Texas could look like. Now, is it your job to, to teach that person when they come it, to the staging? It would either be someone in my position as a stage manager or an assistant director. Um, okay. Depending on, I think, how the company is run and who exactly – and how those roles get divided. Sure. Um, but, yeah, it's usually something like that where – it's almost like having, like, an understudy or a swing sure. in a way. Would you say that you work – you're the kind of person that does really well under pressure because that's what I'm getting from you. I could be totally making that up. 
but like, are you able to, and, and I worked with you a little in the reading, mm-hmm. Zach's reading, and you, you seem to me like someone who's able to really pivot and do what is needed in, in a moment's notice. Is that, is that, would you, you're laughing at me. Are you like, this lady's crazy? No, okay. um, I think you're okay. right. I think, I mean, I think that for me is the fun in opera is it's usually pretty fast and it's usually um, high pressure. Um, and I, and I, and I think that's the fun of it. I mean, it's also incredibly stressful and like not always that fun, but um, I, I think for me, I, I really enjoy the challenge of, oh gosh, there are, like 60 to 80 people who have to get on stage and how do you manage getting them all on the stage and making sure you don't hit them with a piece of scenery, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's kind of magical when it all comes together, when you get through it and you're like, wow, that worked. It worked. Yeah. We got them all on there and we got them all off and then we'll do it again tomorrow. (laughs) So are you, um, did you always want to do something in theater? What drew you to theater school? I did not have the realization that theater school was a thing until my senior year in high school. Um, I really have a distinct memory of realizing, oh, crap, you can do this forever, in a way. (laughs) Um, I had received an email about design and production majors that were cropping up at at a couple colleges. So... That was kind of the realization for me. And at the time, I didn't do stage management. I was kind of interested in lighting. I'd done a little bit of lighting for my high school. I was like, oh, people do this for their living. They study lighting design. Or you can study this in school and you can go do it professionally. And this can be your job. Um, Simultaneously to that, I was having my first stage management experience in high school. Um, And so I was like, Oh, interesting. So I applied to a couple schools that had theater design and product, like theater design or production majors. But a lot of the other ones I applied as an engineer because that was kind of what I thought I was going to be doing. Um, And then what drew me eventually to Michigan specifically is Michigan had a dual degree acceptance program where you could apply to two schools simultaneously as an undergrad. And it's essentially like having a double major, but it's applying to those two schools from your first year and being a dual degree student, you know, right off the bat. So that's what I did for Michigan is I applied as an engineer and I applied as a theater design and production person and I got into both. And so that's how I started. So what you're saying is you're you're a real slouch, Caroline, <laughs> is that you're really an underachiever. Like, I'm so sorry for you. Okay, because U of M is a really in great school. Yes. And that's fantastic. So so you you did that from day one. I mean, like, I couldn't do drinking and acting at the same time. So, like, you were able to do you, – you started day one as a double – two majors. Mm-hmm, okay. Yeah. And did you – how, how did you find U of M? How did you find the, the, like the theater kids versus the engineering kids? Cause we talk a lot about theater school culture, you know, like rolling around on the floor and doing all was, I, I imagine that that was kind of different than the engineering school, yes. although I could be wrong. And I okay. will say I did eventually, I changed my engineering major to a, to a different major. Cause I was like, I can't be here. I think for me, the difficulty was a lot of 
engineers that I knew at least knew that they wanted to be engineers and they had known their whole lives that this was like they took you know they're the type of people who like take apart their car with their parent or they build a computer or they build a small rocket and that's like what they do you know throughout their adolescence to teenager dumb uh and I was I kind of applied to engineering just on like a on a laugh almost like I was like I don't know what I'm gonna do um we'll figure it out every a lot of people had said to me like oh maybe you'd be good at engineering and i was like i don't know what engineering right. is um but sure yeah i still don't know it, it's building things is what you're telling me yeah. it sounds like something if you're good at math and creative is like a- yeah it's a whole mix of things um okay okay but i will say i really enjoyed having two majors um i loved being in theater school um and i loved the friends that i had in theater school and i enjoyed myself a lot and it was fun to be you know sometimes it's silly and it's art and it's a good time and it's fun to walk through your school building and realize people are just having a staff fight like are just practicing for stage combat in the lobby (laughs) or they're doing a show down there and you're like what's happening um but it was also good to be in a, a bigger school community in a way, because the theater school at Michigan, and I think at a lot of places, tends to be really small and insular. insular. Um, whereas engineering schools or humanity programs, you know, are huge. That's where you get the big lecture halls and, you know, a million discussion groups and 300 people in a classroom versus in theater school, it's like 10 or five or what like (laughs) so it was good to be able to split between those two and to be able to go someplace when I was done doing my theater work or I was done with rehearsal and go do something else with other people who weren't still from that world um to to kind of split that work-life balance in a way just with a different work-life balance. And can you tell us about the the culture at the U of M Theater School? Like, what was that like? Like, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast, but we've got like, you know, we went to DePaul Theater School and we talk about like the weirdnesses there, but I know nothing about U of M. What is your take on it? I can speak about the the program I was in and then kind of what I heard from my friends who were in like the acting programs and yeah. things like that. Um, what I really liked about my, the design and production program was that it was very well-rounded. Um, and so what I liked about not specifically majoring in stage management was that I you know, got a little bit of lighting design experience and costume design experience, not like at least in the classroom. And I think that that was really useful um and for the most part the the students in that group are very like close-knit and they collaborate and they share studio space and people are willing to help each other you know pass on that institutional knowledge or try to figure out like you know how to navigate the school a little bit um and at the very least there and maybe i floated above it there wasn't any real crazy um like I don't know competitiveness or competition uh at least between slots maybe that's because I was taking the opera slot and everyone was like you can have that and then from the 
the theater school side and more generally, I think it it's making a lot of strides to be progressive and making a lot of strides to do, you know, to respond to the culture, you know, that we are living in. Um, that being said, it also messed up a lot of times trying to do those things. And it tried to do, you know, helpful things that were actually in a way weirdly hurtful. Um, so there was like a one instance was uh, there was a guest director who was on campus who was giving a speech and this director is Asian American. Uh, and so they had sent out a general email to the theater school students of like, hey, this director is on campus, really cool, giving a talk at, you know, on Friday at 12, you know, come by, there'll be pizza, whatever. And then the head of the department sent a separate email with basically the same information just to the Asian American students in the program, which was understandable maybe, but was also super weird that like, I yes. got the two emails and I was like, why? Maybe they sent it twice. Maybe they just messed up and I snoop. And so I, I just went to go look at the, the send list or who was sending it. And I was like, every single person on this second email is Asian American. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a little weird <laughs> to receive this email. Well, here's the thing. I think it's really sort of um, that's like a metaphor for for America trying to get better and still doing weird shit. I, 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 I feel like there is an awakening that is happening gradually and slowly. And I also feel like that comes with somehow what we're getting. I, I notice it uh, a lot uh, in, uh, you know, in, in the Latina community where it's like, we're doing things that seem good, like a great idea, and also are weird, like you said, like weirdly, oddly hurtful. So it's hard to be, it's hard to know what's helpful and what is just fucking yeah, weird. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's a, it's, a, I will say, it's, a, I think it's a difficult needle to thread of, you know, especially when you're telling, you're trying to tell diverse stories who is allowed to tell those stories and when it is, when is it okay? Cause at least from in my opinion, I think it's also definitely weird to be like only Asian American people can tell Asian American stories. That feels. You think, you think that's weird. You don't agree with that. I worry about it a little bit because I, I think it, it can weirdly pigeonhole people because it's, it, it turns into what is an Asian American story and what makes, that story Asian or Asian American, right? Like I can, you know, I have an immigrant background, like my parents are immigrants, but is that, that's not the only story that I ever want to work on or tell. Like I'm interested in a lot of other things. I find other things that touch me or move me um, from other backgrounds, right? And and I think because I, I also think it can be done well and it can be done respectfully and I think it's good for people to try to learn and immerse themselves in other people's cultures um like one example that I always think of is um I don't know how familiar you are with the show Endlings which is by Celine Song it's a it's a Korean Korean American Korean Canadian show um the director of that for the last couple productions same director is white 
Um, and I spoke to her about it once. I was like, do you, do you get, you know, do people get angry when they realize, you know, you're a white person directing this Korean, Korean American show. And she was like, not a lot. But the thing is, is that the, the agreement between her and the playwright has always been, if you wanted someone else to do it, like I will, I will step off of it. Right. But she also did a lot of the work. She went to Korea. She visited the islands that that work is based on. You know, she collaborates really closely with the playwright who is Korean, you know, and they have these conversations. And I think the way she does it is really respectful. Right. And the playwright, most importantly, wants to work with her. Right. Specifically, there are things about her artistic vision and how she approaches story that are important to the playwright and how that story Told. So I think it's like, I don't want to say like, you can never do the story because you're not Asian. Cause yeah, I think I get what you're saying. On. Cause you're also kind of saying it, that's good. That could be one of those things that could ultimately be hurtful if it gets so insular in some kind of a way that it actually, instead of um, creating a space for somebody to tell their story, it, it, it limits or hinders the ability of certain people to tell their own stories. That makes a lot of sense to me. When you were talking about opera earlier, I was going to ask, is the world of opera going through the same growing pains as the world of theater in terms of representation and, and trying to have more equity? I, yeah, it's definitely tricky um, with, the opera world because the opera world is steeped in you know a lot of those top 10 most famous operas are written by white men um and to be fair i like you know music is beautiful and i understand that it's a tradition and everyone likes to go see bohem at christmas and you know that's like a thing um and but also what do you do you know in trying to diversify the canon and in trying to diversify the people who are on stage and, you know, and it's all about access and, you know, classical music training and, and things like that. I think the opera world is going through that reckoning a little bit. Um, I think it's, at least in my perception, it feels like it's going through it, you know, maybe half a step behind where the theater world is going through it, maybe just because again, a lot of the patronage of opera, at least in America, is, you know, older and wider already, right? It's very different, I feel like, worldwide, because America doesn't have as much a tradition in opera as, like, Europe does. You know, Europe, opera's the shit at Europe, in Europe. Like, people love it, and and that's the main that's one of the, you know, because they, you know, the composers are all from there and, and things like that. And so people are much, I find much more steeped in the culture there than they are here where we have musicals and plays and, you know, the movie to the musical to movie to musical pipeline is just like constantly churning. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting, though. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking, okay, so how how would an institution make opera something that's more accessible to a wider variety of people? I mean, these things have to usually start in public education. It seems hard. It seems like a, 
a, a bridge too far, maybe that that would <laughs> become part of uh, American public education. Although, you know, I could be wrong. Stranger things have happened. I mean, I think that the question of access, I was speaking to someone here at school about it and, you know, they're trying to look into, you know, doing operas by black composers or by composers of color, you know, but they also have their own curriculum and repertoire that they're trying to, to, to have their students move through. You know, you have to do a, you know, they always do a French opera and then a German opera and an English language opera and an Italian opera. And so, you know, wanting students to get the experience of singing in those languages and learning that rep a little bit, but Mm. also trying to find work that is diverse. And then also trying to make sure that you have the students to actually support that work, which is a whole other thing, which, you know, they were talking about doing an opera by, I think, a, I think Afro-German or African-American composer. And, but then I, you know, someone mentioned this man, I was like, does the opera school have enough people of color in the student populace to actually do that work? Cause it's all well and right. good to, to do the work, to, to play the music of those composers. But right. for an opera, you also need people who, you know, you need to do racially appropriate it's, casting for some of right. these shows. And in right. the first time I was talking, she's like, I don't think they do. And I'm waiting for them to realize right. that, oh, you know, it's one, it's, it, it comes. I mean, this is a systemic exactly. problem. Like, this is a problem. Like, they, I believe um, that the play, when we were at DePaul, if Mark, if I'm, there was for yes, colored girls, was done with white people. It was. Or there was a white person. I, I mean, so there, that's a, and look, this was 1990, whatever, but still, that is a problem. It's a systemic. So the more we talk to, you know, people like yourself and other people, like, that 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 are younger it's still a problem it's like it's still a problem it's 19 you know that was 1998 and we're in 2021 and it's we still got a problem so i mean i think that that it's um although buzz i will say you know that play phyllis really wanted to do that play she couldn't wait anymore you know to have uh, more students of color but then she did it again recently and she was able to have the cast that she that is true. wanted to do. You, so. you are correct. So there is progress being made. And also there is something to be said about a, a, a leader, um, you know, a, a leader wanting to do the, couldn't wait any longer to do the play she wanted to do, you know, in an institution that maybe couldn't support it. You're right. You're right. Yeah. There's change. Change looks different, right? Small, big, it's sideways, all kinds of stuff. So Boz and I are very particularly interested in this notion of the difficulty of the the sometimes emotionally difficult aspect of going to college, but in our case, going to a conservatory. I don't know if it's the same, if you had an experience of it being emotionally a difficult thing to survive theater school. Um, but can you tell us anything about how how the process of being in a pro in I guess two programs that you that you were in how how it was maybe difficult for you in a personal way? Hmm. I mean, I think being in, especially for me being in two programs, it was really difficult because the 
the hours and the demands, I think, of doing theater school um, are really challenging to do while also trying to, like, get an education and go to class and write essays and do all of that thing, uh, like, do all of that. Like, for me, because I feel like going to class is all well and good for theater school, but also there's you don't learn in the classroom the way that you learn when you're actually doing the show, right? And so you have to do a show that has to be part of the curriculum for people who, you know, are studying performance or are studying design. You know, you can sit in a light lab all day, but it's not going to be the same experience as lighting a stage and lighting a production and people as they are performing. And so then what ends up happening is you just end up trying to do, you do both. It's, you're not trying to do it. You are doing it. Um, and it's hard, right? Because like when I started doing internships for theater, um, a lot of places would say, oh, it's fast paced. It's a lot of work. Um, but in my experience, I was like, this is so much easier because this is the only thing I'm doing when I'm doing an internship versus, oh, I'm also going to school 40 hours a week. <laughs> Um, mm. in a, and then trying to do a show for 40 hours a week. Um, and I think at some point you just run out of hours in the day to do both of those things. Right. Um, so like coming back to do the opera this year is extremely different than doing it as a student, if only because I'm not a student anymore. Um, and, you know, there are other weird things that happen with that, right, of just like being on campus when you're not a student anymore. But the opera was basically like a 40-hour-a-week job, right? And I did that while taking 20 credits <laughs> at the same time. Did you switch? You said you switched out of the engineering to what? What did you switch I, from? Engineering I switched to- from engineering to studying uh, cognitive science uh, through the, the humanities school. Yeah. <laughs> What, I don't even know what cognitive science is. Is that psychology? It's I don't know. a few know. things. I studied specifically, um, I focused on a track called Language and the Mind. Um, and so I studied a bit of linguistics mm-hmm. and psychology and uh, like some computation and things like that. And it was kind of about how language is represented in the brain and how it functions um, there. Wow. What drew you to that? <gasps> um I kind of, I, so I was in engineering school and I was doing, um, I was interested maybe in doing computer science, but I didn't want to take physics um, because I didn't think it was important for computer science. Um, uh, I realized in the midst of doing computer science that I didn't care about like building artificial intelligence, but I wanted to like talk about the implications of artificial intelligence and like, that's all I wanted like or like you know artificial intelligence is an example but I was like oh I don't really care about some of the actual making of this here I just want to talk about it I want to think about it and figure out how it works but I don't actually want to put like fingers to keyboard and type the code that actually has to make it run I'm like someone else can do that and they can bang their head against the wall trying to do that uh and I'll just you know talk about the theory of it yeah from a lot of the things that you've said today I get the impression that your brain is so capable of 
you know, managing problems intellectually, but you have a more of a desire to, to process things relationally. And maybe, maybe that's why you have this pull between, you know, like sort of heady academic theoretical study and then I mean it doesn't get really any more visceral than opera it doesn't it's like it's all in emotion wise I mean not that I see a lot of it but that's how it seems to me do you do you identify with that tension between the the relational and the theoretical I never thought about it before but I I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense um and I think I think maybe part of why I was never interested in the, you know, fingers to keyboard work of, of creating code or anything was because I was already exercising, you know, some of the making parts of my brain in like making an opera happen and in managing that and in, in problem solving that. And so I, I didn't, I was not interested in like the trial and error of computer programming or of engineering so I was kind of exercising those parts of my brain a little bit elsewhere. Um, and, and I was, you know, doing all of that, like, you know, nowadays, like, you know, opera and theater at all has to be in person. Well, it doesn't have to be. There's really interesting virtual theater that's happening because of the pandemic. But, you know, it has to be with people and it has to do and, you know, and I then I also needed my break away from that of like, I'm just going to go sit here and read my books and think about my articles and think about language a little bit. And I kind of split between, you know, this very interpersonal world of, you know, logistics and relationships in opera and theater um, and then, you know being on my own and thinking my thoughts. <laughs> oh, that's what you meant by work-life balance really more. It's really work-work balance. <laughs> it's a little bit maybe that. So I'm, cur- I'm, I'm curious about something you said in the beginning where you said that the m- music program was pretty formal and the theater program was pretty informal. W- what about you? Do you like the formal more or do you like the informal more? The, I, I'm much more... I think comfortable with some of the informal, but it, it is, I have found that some of the formality at the music school is like helpful. Um, And I have also found, I think this in some ways goes in my head, these things are related of, you know, the formality of the music school and the fact that, you know, it's everyone knows the show and they come in knowing the show and everyone knows the story of Bohem or whatever. Um, in that the, the roles are much clearly are more clearly defined, I feel like. And then the actual rehearsal processes tend to just be very focused and like, cool, we know we got to stage this thing in two weeks or whatever. And we're just going to go, go, go. We're not like doing any table work or there is discovery and there's artistry in it, but I find it's very different than, you know, in theaters, in some of the theater rehearsal rooms I've been in where it's like you sit at the table for, you know, three days and then there's just like physical exercises for four days. And then eventually you actually start to set things. 
Um, the example I always give of why I enjoy sometimes working in opera is opera when you're taking like timings of a show, it's almost always exactly the same because the music and the tempo is if you have a good conductor, it's the same every day, right? It, they're going to conduct that thing the same way they've conducted it the last 20 times versus in theater. Sometimes I have found a two minute monologue turns into two and a half minute monologue turns into 30 <laughs> seconds of a monologue after you forgot half of your line turns into a five minute monologue as you try to remember <laughs> your lines. Oh, and, like, and that's, fun in its own way but I also really enjoy the fact that in opera everyone knows their lines and we're just singing the music right. and the music is exactly what's written on the page well I, I yes and I wonder too because we talk a lot about boundary problems within a acting program theater conservatory and I'm wondering if the more and maybe I, I could be totally off but I just wonder if there's a correlation between the in it's sort of the um, nebulous area of calling a teacher, hey, hey, you know, you know, whatever their nickname is, sort of lends itself to what are the roles here? Are we peers? Are you, uh, are you, uh, are you on my level? And really, they're not. They're twenty five years older, some cases. But there is, and so I'm imagining at the music school, the the conservatory, as it was sort of meant to be back in the day, sort of maintains that sort of. No, I'm the instructor. I have no feelings. I mean, this is what I make up, and you are the student, and you, but. It's less confusing in a way because people know who the boss is and who's running the show as where my experience at theater school was like, oh, this is this is sort of a peer that's also not a peer that's a father figure that's a friend. <laughs> he can he can cut he can cut us from the program but he's also coming to our party on Friday yeah, night and drinking right, with yeah. us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a little bit it's a little it's it's very tricky to say the least. So it's interesting that the music school has maintained what I assumed and maybe I wrong too that back in the day the acting school might have been more sure and then it but then it hit this 60s 70s period where everyone was just i think it was okay to sleep with everybody mm -hmm. and that infiltrated the acting part and the music part never got that because i remember at depaul the music school was just like you're saying mm -hmm. that that they that it was way more formal because we have a friend whose father was a music professor and they called him Dr. Brown all the time. Jeff's dad, Do Professor Brown, Dr. It was never like, hey, <laughs> you know, like it was more like, so I don't know. I think I might have used that. I could have used a little more formality. Yeah, me too. Because I, I like rules, you know, but in, in any <laughs> case, you're. I'm coming to some new realizations based on um, what you're saying, which is really interesting. And then I just... Can you both indulge me? I have an opera story that's like one minute <laughs> yeah, long. Yeah, please. Okay. I I get a call from my agent. You're going to the Lyric Opera to audition. I'm like, listen, I, I don't sing opera. And they are like, well, you're going to you know they're looking for people that can just carry a tune but are actors. I say, no problem. That's me. I go get a coach. I sing. I don't even remember what the opera was. I've, blo I've totally blocked it out. But I get a coach and I sing the stepsister from Rogers and Hammerstein's uh, Cinderella. So why would I? Okay, so fine. I get a coach. Fine. I'm I'm feeling good about myself. I go downtown Chicago to the famed historic lyric opera. I go into the basement. There's no cell reception. I notice. I'm like, oh, that's okay. The basement of the bowels of the institution, and I'm 
I sit there waiting for my spot to come. Sitting next to me are two other actors who also are opera singers and are singing operas as at the audition for the role I'm auditioning for. And I think I'm going to call my agent and say, this is a horrible mistake. I have no cell reception. I'm like, what do I do? Do I run away? Do I go? So I go to the bathroom. They're singing in the bathroom, like, like doing their, I cannot sing. So I'm like, okay, I don't. And then they call me in. I walk in. It's a director from Broadway or from, from New York, some famous lady. I, the, the, the accompanist starts right away and I, <laughs> and I, I literally, it was one time in my life that I went into a blackout. Like I cannot remember. I don't know if I sang the song. I remember seeing the, not the director, but someone else in the room writing no in big <gasps> letters on my, on my sheet. Oh God. And I, I lost my, but you know what? And then I, and I, I just thought, and it was like all the costumes of all the Labo M's were, we were in the costume room. And I just remember thinking, this is the only time I will ever be in an, in a, in the opera house as a, as an auditioner. And it was true, but I, the respect I had for these people who could sing and, and we had to do a scene and we had to do the splits splits was part of the thing. So I have so much respect for people who can sing opera, not just carry a tune, sing opera and do some acting and do physical stuff. I'm like, this is, it was the most terrifying. And the accompanist, I just remember looking, he looked at me like, Oh my God! What what happened to you? You're in trouble, so, girl. Anyway, that's my. I, I was in trouble, girl. I was in trouble. If you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you!